0: Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe.
1: diplomacy fails and war is unwise, call on the CIA Special Activities Division. It's the gray area before war.
0: Welcome to the Stratfor podcast from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. In this episode of the Stratfor podcast's Pen and Sword series, Annie Jacobson, author of Surprise, Kill, Vanish, the secret history of CIA paramilitary armies, operators and assassins, speaks with Stratfor's chief security officer, Fred Burton, about the grit, determination and secrecy that are the hallmarks of intelligence work. As fast-paced as a thriller, the book was written by a Pulitzer Prize finalist and, as Fred Burton tells us, needs devouring in a single read.
2: Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Annie Jacobson, and Annie has written a new book called Surprise, Kill, Vanish, The Secret History of CIA Paramilitary Armies, Operators, and Assassins. Annie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Annie, what drew you to this topic?
1: My desire to write a book about the CIA's special activities division. It's paramilitary wing, goes back to 2009. When I was when I got a visit from a source, he was on his way back from the Middle East. I was working on a different book at the time. And he came by my house to visit. Uh, my two young sons were little kids at the time, and they had a lot of G.I. Joes in the garden. And as you know, G.I. Joes have those plastic weapons. And the source, his first name was Brett, he was showing the boys how the, you know, which soldiers from which generation used which weapon. And they were fascinated by this. And he said to them, you know, if it's okay with your mom and dad, I will show you a real weapon. Now, I know him to be a licensed weapon safety instructor. My husband and I were like, that's fine. He set up a sniper rifle in the in the sort of dining room area of our house that has windows that look out across the canyon. And when I looked through this scope, I could see the veins on a leaf. So I thought to myself, I have a feeling I know what my colleague here, my source, is doing in the Middle East. The boys went out to the garden, but I had noticed there was one weapons case he didn't open, and I asked him what was in that case. He opened it up, there was a very large knife, a serrated knife. And I said, what, what's that for? And I immediately knew I'd sort of misspoken, um, or, or my naivete was obvious. And he said to me, sometimes a job requires quiet. So what motivated me to write this book was in part my own reaction to that. In other words, when I could imagine him taking out an an Al-Qaeda fighter or a Taliban fighter with a sniper rifle, I thought a certain way. But the idea of this person I knew stabbing someone in the ribs or slitting their throat really gave me pause. And I was just as interested in my own reaction, sort of meaning the citizens of the United States, our reaction to killing, to targeted killing, to... What I learned was called gentlemanly warfare, which is rules of engagement that the Pentagon goes by, and this idea of ungentlemanly warfare or guerrilla warfare, which is how the CIA uh, does business for the president.
2: Annie, that's an unbelievable story. It's not every day you get visited by uh, CIA assassins.
1: And I didn't know that was his job at the time, Fred. You know, he had been a federal agent before that, working in Homeland Security. And I knew he was weapons trained. And when he came to visit, he gave me one of those challenge coins. And it said, you know, there was a picture of Afghanistan on one side of it. And on the opposite side, it said, you know, State Department, Kabul, Afghanistan. And I thought, my friend is not a diplomat. That I knew, (laughs) right? And so I had a feeling that he was working in the intelligence community, but I didn't know specifically why. And that source never told me anything about what he did, not then and not since. I found out from others who worked with him that he was a member of Ground Branch, which is, as you know, the CIA's sort of branch on the ground, they also have an air branch and they have a maritime branch. But Ground Branch is very, secretive. I dare I say it's one of the CIA's most jealously guarded secrets.
2: Well, I think you're right about that, Annie, and I know from following your work uh, from Area 51 to phenomena to Operation Paperclip that you're you're always drawn to secrets. Why is that, Annie?
1: I think that's the journalist in me. Um But it's also, it goes back to the Eisenhower principle, which is why I, you know, people, the other question people ask me is, how do you get these really interesting sources to talk to you who might not otherwise speak to a journalist? And I think the reason is the Eisenhower principle. So in his farewell speech, it is very well known that he spoke of the military industrial complex and warned Americans to be very careful that the country did not go in that direction where we were just making weapons and making war. But the lesser known part of Eisenhower's farewell speech offered a solution, an antidote, if you will. And that was, he said, that an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can essentially you know, provide the checks and balances to the military industrial complex. And so I always use that in discussion with my sources, like the public needs to be alert and knowledgeable. They can't be alert without being knowledgeable. We need some information. And so because that's how I lead, that is my intention is to inform, you know, which is really what journalism is about. It's, it's to inform the public. It's not to have an opinion.
2: Annie, this book took no small effort. It's more than 500 pages, about 75 of which were notes and bibliography. What was the hardest part of pulling this history together?
1: I think it was organizing a way in which the narrative could make sense across time. Because because so much of this is classified and hidden in in, in secrecy and cloaked in sort of, you know, obscurity. As I was researching and reporting and interviewing sources, I was learning as I, as I went. And, you know, there are certain Operations that we know about, for example, I write about Guatemala or the Bay of Pigs that are well known in the public because they were CIA failures. We don't know or we didn't know as much about CIA success stories because the intention is for them to remain, you know, plausibly denied. That is the hallmark of CIA covert action. And so I was trying to put a balance in play so that readers could feel like, oh, I know what. I'm familiar with Guatemala, that's what that is. Oh, I'm familiar with the CIA rumored to have killed Che Guevara. So giving people some context to this big, broad, and mysterious subject so that they could, you know, understand the way in which this plays out. With that said, I think my reporting is a tiny tip of the iceberg. There is so much more going on. I mean, I learned in the end of my reporting that the CIA's Special Activities Division is operating in what is believed to be 134 countries around the globe.
2: Looking into this with your research, did you come across uh, any females in this business?
1: There was one or two females in a program which I write about in the very end of the book, which is essentially breaking news if you will um, and it, that is the fact that right after nine eleven, 11 the agency went to the president with a first they went to Dick Cheney that part has been reported in a couple of different books but what I learned is and the way it was reported was this small unit which I report was called a stalker team um, that went to the president and then the reporting stops there, no one was able to find out if it actually came to fruition. The uh, stalker team did happen, and the president authorized it, and a 12-man unit was dispatched around the world, sometimes into NATO partner countries, and on that team was one or two women. And the idea there was that women could get into situations that men might not otherwise be able to get themselves into. Um, That part of the story I find fascinating and I can't wait for the journalist who is able to interview that woman or I couldn't really clarify if it was one woman or two women.
2: That sounds like a great follow-on book,
1: uh, Annie. (laughs) I mean, it's such a rarefied male world. I should, actually, I'm going to have to clarify that because Billy Wall, who is my main source, and he was he operated for the agency starting in the '60s in the Vietnam War, and then all the way through the present tense. And he worked with a lot of women, and he was always working with them and speaking very highly of their ability to operate in foreign countries. Because primarily of the language capabilities, and I found that fascinating. He said a lot of the women who join the Special Activities Division come with an extraordinary command of a foreign language. Um, and that makes them a real asset because when you're doing covert operations, as you know, um, you know, the less you stand out, the better the chances are for the success of the operation.
2: Do you think this kind of work is necessary today, Annie?
1: Well, you know, covert action is called the third option for the president, tertia optio. And I found that very interesting to think about as I was researching and reporting this book all along the way, because, of course, the first option is diplomacy, which is what everyone hopes for in a perfect world, you know the State Department is able to work out uh, the conflicts that we're having with um, other nations. And the second option, traditionally, historically, is war. So only after 1947, after the National Security Act, was this third option put into play, which is the CIA's hidden hand. And so in essence, it's, you know, if diplomacy fails and war is unwise, call on the CIA Special Activities Division. That's really interesting to think about because it's the gray area before war. And if I do have an opinion in all of this, it's that um, I was most impacted by the fact that most of the operators, be they on ground branch or other areas of the CIA's paramilitary, they were people in their 40s and up. And they are veteran tier one special forces trained operators who are really confident in their abilities, in their capabilities, in their goals, in their targets, and they want to be in the war theater um, or, you know, outside the war theater. And when I interview young men, and I'm talking very young men, like 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are going to war, and some of them are coming home missing limbs or in terrible cases of PTSD, um, not all of them, but a lot of them, um, I really go back to that age-old um, archetype that young men become cannon fodder for the generals. And that is, that is my opinion, but that is my observation, and that is what makes me think perhaps the third option should be really considered by the citizenry.
2: Yeah, you make a very good point with that, uh, and I happen to agree with you on that assessment. When you look through your research for surprise, kill, vanish. What's the one thing that really shocked you?
1: I would have to say, and I, I write about this in the last few chapters of the book, um, one of the things that the CIA is always doing, and it's something that the Green Berets do as well, is work with indigenous force partners. So in other words, locals. And we train them, we equip them, and we teach them how to sabotage and subvert. Um, that goes back to the old days of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, from which the their motto was surprise kill vanish, okay? So it was the idea, in back in World War II, the original OSS jetbergs were jumping out of helicopters into Nazi-occupied France, you know, cutting the throats of the Nazis and vanishing and working with, to accomplish that, they worked with their French partners, okay, the the, the the resistance fighters, French resistance fighters on the ground. And that model carries over. It's like, find locals we can work with. They know the land. They understand the geography. They understand customs. They have access to places that, you know, U.S. soldiers don't. And in the last part of the book, when I'm looking at the indigenous force partners that we chose in Afghanistan and in our Iraq it's horrifying to learn and again from the first hand sources telling me this but doing lots of you know double checking with these sources that these partners are really in many cases reprehensible they do not adhere whatsoever to the values that we Americans in a democracy hold dear they you know, from drugs to, um, corruption. And that becomes very disheartening to report because I got the sense from a lot of the ground branch operators that they were really compromising their morals. They were feeling like, why are we in partnership with some of these indigenous people?
2: Well, I think that, uh, what you also have uncovered is that this is a dirty business at times, which, um, a lot of folks really don't like to think about
1: it's a very dirty business you know but again those are the issues that's what taking it all the way back to my initial question to my own self why am i okay with that and not that you know um but i think you've hit upon a very important point that people sh- should think about which is you know where do you draw the line where what dirty business is okay or or at least acceptable
0: We'll get back to Annie Jacobson and Fred Burton in just one moment. But if you're interested in reading Surprise, Kill, Vanish, be sure to check out our links in the show notes. Annie Jacobson has pulled together 42 interviews with former CIA covert operatives just for this book. It's a complicated project that demands extensive knowledge and the ability to decipher a career that has become the hallmark for a whole genre of fiction. But just as Stratford for analysts reveal the underlying geopolitics behind global events, Jacobson has brought this secretive world into reality. Stratfor Enterprise provides critical information to businesses and professionals who need to know how emerging world events will affect them, their employees, and also their businesses. Our analyst team provides invaluable insights into the short and long-term implications of what's happening right now, and that's so that you can develop a more accurate view of the future. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level subscriptions at stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now, back to Fred, Annie, and Surprise Kill Vanish.
2: As you look at uh, the history of Ground Branch, Annie, what strikes you as perhaps their greatest success?
1: I'm certain that I don't know about it. (laughs) I mean, when you (laughs) consider that the president's hidden hand is is called that for a reason, you know. It's like that's the vanish part of Surprise, Kill, Vanish. So, you know, I mean, a lot of emphasis was put on the book and in the press about the assassination elements of it just because it's so incendiary. And I think people are accustomed to think about that in terms of, you know, they've been sort of – they think about that perhaps because of the way it's assassination – is presented in the culture and also because targeted killing by drone strikes, CIA's air branch is such a, you know, is, is an area that has been well reported. Um, but what these small unit teams are accomplishing in places that we don't know, I imagine is what is success for the president. And I have to, you know, if you reverse engineer that thought, There must be successes going on because the Special Activities Division recently grew to its own interdisciplinary center. So it's now the Special Activities Center. So it's bigger than ever. And the CIA is a success-based organization from what I understand. What works grows. What doesn't work gets curtailed.
2: Yes, that's very well put. And as you look at uh, the course of putting this story together, Annie, I know you centered on a couple key figures, uh, the first being uh, Billy Wall. Talk a little bit about your, your second uh, primary contact that you talk a great deal about in the story.
1: So Lou Merletti was very interesting to me because he – has the same training as Wall. They were both Green Berets in Vietnam, which is how most Special Activities Division operators are military trained. I mean, a few of the officers just go to the farm, but for the most part, they they start out as Green Berets, as Delta, as SEALs, as you know, PJs, uh, MARSOC. Um, Lou Merlotti was a young, very young kid in the Vietnam War as a Green Beret who was a medic. And when he came out and he was being recruited, unlike Billy Waugh was recruited by the CIA, Merletti was actually recruited by NSA, and he said, I actually want to, you know, help people and save people. And so he became a Secret Service agent. And because of his training in guerrilla warfare in the Vietnam War, he became a member of the very secretive element of the U.S. Secret Service, which is called the CAT team, the counter-assault team. And they, in essence, are a little guerrilla warfare paramilitary unit that guards the president 24-7. They are almost unreported on. Merletti was, um, you know, came up through the ranks that way and ended up being in the protective presidential detail of a number of presidents and then being in charge of Clinton's detail and ultimately becoming the 19th director of the Secret Service. And so why I found him fascinating was whereas many Americans might say, well, that's the opposite of, you know, the CIA's paramilitary units that are going out doing tertio-optio. Lou Merletti presented his story very differently. He believes that his work and the work protecting a president is the other side of the coin to the third option, meaning they must work together. So he does national security defense, and the guys like Waugh and others in the special activities division are out there doing national security offense, if you will.
2: Yeah, he was a fascinating figure, uh, and certainly uh, I lived through those time frames when uh, he was uh, in the saddle, and I think you're right. The Secret Service uh, cat team uh, is something that a lot of people aren't familiar with, and so I think that that's one of the more interesting aspects of the book, you have segments like that, that are very enlightening for anybody interested in national security matters.
1: And reporting that was very interesting, because I don't believe any Secret Service director has gone on the record with a reporter before, which is not as much to boast by any means as much to say how I believe Lou Merletti's position was this is important for the public to understand that one element should not be vilified and the other element glorified. It's all part of the same significant national security system. And Merletti has a trust and confidence agreement with the presidency protected. So he was very careful not to provide details that cannot be out in the public domain. But in theory, how that concept works, he was able to articulate to me in a way that I think is very informative going back to that Eisenhower principle.
2: Annie, in the course of doing your research for all of your books, which uh, are simply marvelous, looks into the secret world of the intelligence community. What has been the most difficult book that you have put together in just trying to acquire data sets? I'm thinking about, as I read Area 51 or Operation Paperclip, or even Phenomena, uh, I was struck by how much research actually had to be done to put these stories together, having been successful in cobbling together a few books myself. I know the time involved. So out of all your projects that you've worked on, which has been the most difficult?
1: You know, it might be Surprise, Kill, Vanish, because it's such a secretive world. That the the declassification documents, that was, it was very different because, um, the CIA just has a, you know, it's, it's coming out of the gate with a different mentality. And also because you had the singletons, which Billy Wise, so you have individuals working on missions, you have teams, small teams that are kind of like I write report on the stalker team in the end. And then you have these big, in terms of history of these invasion forces like at the bay of pigs and in guatemala so trying to narratively understand how those units flow and also how things have changed over time that was very challenging and when i when i finally figured it out fred and this is kind of speaks a little bit to what you write about so well is it all kind of came together and hinged the, the story, that is, of how this legacy from 1947, when the president's guerrilla warfare corps was initially created, which is what it was originally called, all the way to now to these ground branch operators doing what they're doing in 134 countries, I realized it hinges on... The Bill Casey years. It wasn't just before Vietnam and after Vietnam. It's, okay, what it was like during the Cold War and those presidents and how they were working. Then we have the Vietnam War, followed by the church commissions. This incredible, what, you know, CIA insiders call the time of troubles. I mean, paramilitary operators at the CIA, that was persona non grata. I mean, special forces were gutted. No one no one was interested in warfare, let alone, you know, special warfare. It was just really scorned and looked down upon. And it wasn't until Bill Casey took office and President Reagan was almost assassinated. You have operators going, I mean, very important, significant CIA analysts going missing um, in Beirut and our embassy being blown up and the station being blown up. Suddenly it was like, okay, now the game is back on. And once I figured out that moment in time was a real hinge and a pivot point, then I was able to understand how it worked in the big picture better myself.
2: Bill Buckley, who I wrote my last book about uh, Beirut rules. He was a paramilitary officer and you had that class system that kept uh, coming up in the course of my research and talking to the old boys from the agency between your traditional case officers and uh, your knuckle-draggers in the paramilitary world.
1: Absolutely. And they were, you're right, there was kind of a division. I mean, knuckle-draggers was a derogatory term. And now it's funny because... The guys call them, you know, I'm a knuckle-dragger, I'm a meat-eater. I mean, they say that with a sense of pride because the Special Activities Division has become the Special Activities Center and there is a sense that they are needed, wanted, and the work they do is absolutely necessary to the CIA's footprint around the world as opposed to analysts perhaps looking down on those operators and saying, well, they're kind of we, when we need them we'll call upon them.
2: It's much like the perception at times that the Foreign Service had of the State Department special agents that, you know, you have that division between your traditional Foreign Service officer and your regional security officers or your special agents that's trying to keep everybody alive.
1: One of the guys that spoke to me that was on the stalker team, he said, you know, and this is a this is a quote from him, he said, in the old days The special activity guys were knuckle-draggers and snake-eaters, second-class citizens as operations officers, not anymore. And he's talking (laughs) about how they are looked to at the agency to take the lead, not looked down upon.
2: Yeah, at times uh, you need a very specific kind of surgeon to get a job done, and I think that's uh, exactly where ground branch fits
1: that really, I think, is the core here. And it's back to that original origin story for me of all this, which is, is there really such a thing as gentlemanly warfare? I mean, the, you know, during World War Two, that what the OSS was doing was looked down upon. It's why Truman ended it. It was like, gentlemen, do not slit throats. War should be fought. by the old sort of Athenian way. Well, you have to ask yourself, are you trying to win a game or are you trying to end the war? And that's where it gets super complex because we're talking about all these small wars and we're talking about unconventional warfare and that is the direction in which things are moving. So you say, well what is this idea of these sort of endless small wars versus a big pentagon war i don't have the answer i'm not a policymaker but i think that is a very worthy question to consider sometimes when i'm when i'm confronted with this issue of like you know where the suggestion from someone is that perhaps i'm condoning um assassination my answer is a statistic that I found that is very difficult to find because it's part of the inspector general for Afghanistan's report. By the way, the Trump administration just got rid of his position, so this won't even exist anymore. But in a SEGAR report, that's what it's called, the number of bombs dropped by the Pentagon on Afghanistan alone last year were 7,200 and change. Now, that is extraordinary. So if you balance out a 12-man team going out to preemptively neutralize someone versus the damage done by 7,200 bombs. You know, you must ask yourself where the issue of morality comes in, if at all.
2: Surprise, kill, vanish, the secret history of CIA paramilitary armies, operators, and assassins. Thank you for being with Stratfor Talks today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us for this conversation with Stratfor's Chief Security Officer, Fred Burton, and Annie Jacobson, author of Surprise, Kill, Vanish, the secret history of CIA paramilitary armies, operators, and assassins. We'll include details on how to purchase the book in the show notes, along with a link to Fred Burton's latest bestseller, Beirut Rules. And if you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com slash enterprise. And to ask us a question about this podcast in particular, or even propose an idea for the next one, please drop us an email at podcast at stratfor.com. And if you have a moment, we'd love it if you left a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. Your feedback is really valuable to us. And for more geopolitical intelligence, links and fun facts about what goes into forecasting world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.